Hello, and welcome to this podcast presented by the Southern Alberta Council on Public Affairs. If you would please make sure your cell phones are turned off. I just heard some beeping, so we do want to make sure that they're off. And I will tell you right now that mine is on in my purse. I'll get it as soon as I get back to the table. Sorry. Um, so today, as I said, April 19th, Southern Alberta Council on Public Affairs. And welcome. We are being um, taped, so please um, react accordingly. We all must show decorum when we're being taped. And I would like to welcome you here. My name is Susan Giffen, and I am your moderator for this afternoon. So, of course, we do have the regular housekeeping that we do at the beginning of each program. Please remember that your um, lunch today is free, but we ask you to put $10 in the basket for the speaker. However, she doesn't get that money. Uh, other than that, we would like to thank Country Kitchens for the lovely lunch that they put on for us today and our sponsors, the University of Lethbridge and, and, that's all, okay, and Shaw, and Shaw Cable, and they do tape us and put us on through the week. So I would like to introduce Sheila French. She is speaking today on the Federal Omnibus Crime Bill and whether or not it makes sense. Sheila is currently completing a PhD in Applied and Experimental Psychology with a focus on criminal justice research. She has recently taken a faculty position at the Lethbridge College in the Criminal Justice Program. Prior to this, she was a director of the clinical services within the Ministry of Corrections, Public Safety and Policing, Policing, Government of Saskatchewan. She has researched and published in the areas of offender rehabilitation and criminal risk prediction. Her primary research method is meta-analysis, and she has promised me that she will tell me a little bit about what that is, which is the quantitative synthesis of large bodies of related research, which went like that. So she is going to tell us what that is. So I would like to welcome Sheila. Thank you. Thank you, everyone. Um, now that I know I'm being taped, I'll have to really clean up my language a lot. Uh, before I begin, I just would like to say thank you to some of my colleagues here. I'm on my tippy toes. I swear I am not sitting down or kneeling. I really am this short. Uh, I just want to thank my colleagues, Marty Thompson, Earl Nelson, and Ian Heffer for being here, although I did ask them to come in their underwear. It would just take the focus off of me and make me a little more comfortable. And as you can see, I got zero support from them. Thank you very much for inviting me. Um, I'm not nervous when I present until I get here. And then I get here, and I'm, I'm all of a sudden, that sympathetic nervous system kicks in, and off I go. I'm going to speak to you today a little bit about um, how to make sense of the Safer Streets and Communities Act. 
you might also know it as Bill C-10, the Omnibus Crime Bill. I first became familiar with this bill as I was working in Saskatchewan in the ministry, and, um, and this past term with my students in one of my classes, we really in-depth had a look at the bill. We had a look at um, why. Why is the government introducing this? We had a look at, um, I brought some of the research that I know about with respect to rehabilitation and reducing reoffending and recidivism. We had a look at that. And we really talked about some of the implications. So what I'm giving you today is exactly what we've gone through. So I'm bringing a lot of my students' work with me today. Um, and uh, so I, I hope you appreciate the effort that they've put in. My initial slide here, the graphic in the corner, um, some of you may be interpreting that as my frustration with the crime bill, <clears throat> and perhaps a little bit of my political persuasion, which I'm going to keep out of my presentation today. It's not. It's really reflective of what I've looked like for the last four months in my new position and my move to Lethbridge um, and the chaos that's ensued. I was teasing someone this morning and saying, you could use my office on an episode of Hoarders because in the beginning it was lovely and pristine and you could see the countertop. And if you had a time-lapsed photography over the course of the term, it's now piled with all of these piles of paper and garbage and everything else. So that's kind of a reflection of how my last few months have been with respect to the chaos, um, but enjoyable chaos. Okay, so today we're going to have a look at oops, the bill itself. I'd really like to focus on the mandatory minimums. That's the area that's my interest. Um, that's the area that um, was least congruent for me with what I know about reducing reoffending and um, um, reducing crime rates. So we'll have a little look at the bill. We'll kind of go through quickly what the nine different sections are, just very briefly in a list. Um, we'll talk a little bit about what are the crime trends in Canada, um, because that really is the logic behind the bill, is that Canadians don't feel safe, crime is through the roof. Um, so we'll look at those and kind of see where the, the, the realities are there. I'd like to make a good portion of it, um, the presentation, bringing to the table what we know in terms of three principles for reducing reoffending. These are three principles that have been supported over and over again in the literature with literally thousands and thousands of offenders. And so uh, much of that research, which has been introduced by Canadian researchers and funded by Public Safety and Corrections Canada, um, and then um, I have prepared a few slides that have to do with the implications. Um, they're really just discussion points um, around some of the things that may be potentially um, concerning about the bill. So as you, many of you know, the bill is made up of nine previously introduced bills that had not made it all the way through Parliament. Um, for various reasons. And so um, as part of the Progressive Conservative election campaign, um, Stephen Harper said, we're going to pass this bill if we have a majority and we're going to pass it within the first 100 days. So it was first introduced to the House on September 20th of last year. 
had its first Senate reading, so it passed through the House, had its first Senate reading on, um, on uh, sorry, December 6th of 2011, and then um, was fully passed and received royal assent on March um, the 13th of this year. So that was the 96th day of the sitting of this House. So they had four days um, grace there to get through. So what exactly is contained in Bill C-10? There's the Protecting Children from Sexual Predators Act. This is one that I will um, break down some of the, uh, generally, some of the mandatory minimums that are involved with that. Penalties for organized drug crime. This is where um, the government is really targeting those organized traffickers, those um, organized offenders who, um, it's really their way to target um, drug crime and offenders. I won't spend any time here, but it really has implications for those that um, um, govern young offenders in terms of um, an increased potential for young offenders to receive adult sentences. Uh, ending house arrest for um, property and other types of crime, which has implications, of course, for electronic monitoring and those kinds of sanctions that um, courts may allow. The Increasing Offender Accountability Act has to do with uh, reducing those conditional sentences for offenders. So rather than having an offender um, serve their sentence um, in the community with the option of revoking that community privilege and putting them in jail to finish their sentence, the, this act um, kind of absolves that for uh, these types of crimes. And so they will... Um, you'll see a huge reduction in conditional sentences. Uh, eliminating pardons for serious crimes. I will not spend any time here as well, although it has had implications for um, two of my students this term who were partway through their pardon process and now um, financially it's going to cost them about $800 to $1,000 more and um, in terms of the length of time. So there, there are issues there with uh, people who are trying to turn their life around and are unable to do so in a timely kind of manner. Keeping Canadians safe, the International Transfer of Offenders Act. I won't talk about that today, but again, it's another part of the bill. And the Justice for Victims of Terrorism Act, again, part of the legislation, part of what was a huge bill, um, and uh, very little discussion on quite a few parts. And then the final part is preventing the trafficking, abuse, and exploitation of vulnerable immigrants. And so that's part of that um, um, that slave uh, uh, issue that's going on with immigrants coming in and being used um, for slave labor or for uh, prostitution. So that's briefly how I'll introduce the act. Um, at this point, after the students and I had had a look through um, what was involved in the bill and how enormous it was, they that's them down there, the, the little students with big questions, huge questions around, okay, so what are the mandatory minimums? Um, you know, people keep talking about how, uh, how many implications they're going to have. What exactly are they? So we did go and try to um, break them down. And the first thing we did was look at was what's the definition of a mandatory minimum sentence? 
It's a legislated sentencing where judicial discretion is minimized or eliminated. And so what that means is that there's an automatic minimum sentence for certain convictions, and the judge has no discretion to move in either direction on that, or to, to lessen that. And so, of course, that's why um, uh, the courts are a, a little bit up in arms, is because, of course, judges don't like to have their discretion removed. Um, and so that's part of the issue. So what my students want to know is, at this point, are, are these new? Have we had mandatory minimums? I said, well, let's go have a look. And so here's what we found. They're not new. We went as far back as the first um, Criminal Code of Canada, which was around, um, what, 1892, somewhere in there. And we found evidence of mandatory minimums there in terms of sentencing. The most recent ones began in about 1954. The very first mandatory minimum from that period of time was a 14-day sentence for someone who is on their second conviction for drunk driving. And then that increased to 90 days upon their third and subsequent conviction. So that was kind of the beginning. That was the first. Then there was a period of, um, I'm going to jump down to 1965 and 66, because that was a period where all of the um, mandatory minimums for gun crimes came in. And that's also the year I was born was 65. So I think... I don't think it, maybe it was foreshadowing, but I never did turn out to own guns, so that's not what they were doing. Um, so we're looking at fire alarms-related convictions, and the mandatory minimums there ranged anywhere from one, years, one year to four years. And then jumping back up to 1979, of course, was when um, the mandatory minimum 25-year sentence came in, or life sentence for first-degree murder, murder and for high treason. Um, and so you can kind of see from there that those were the initials. Well, my students were surprised by that. They didn't know that we already had um, sentences like this. So that was an eye-opener for them. 2005, the target there was sexual assaults or sexual victimization of children. And so you see um, some mandatory minimums happening there that range from 14 days all the way up to six months. And then with the current bill, what we see is an increase in the um, sexual offenses against children that carry mandatory minimum sentences, and we also see a lengthening of um, the actual mandatory minimum, so it's a little bit longer. So what happens when a person is um, faced with certain um, types of crime is that the Crown Prosecution can either proceed summarily if the crime is not seen to be as severe in their eyes, or they can proceed um, with it as an indictable offense. So if they proceed summarily um, for some of these sexual crimes against children, the mandatory minimums are 30 days to one year. If they proceed um, as an indictable offense, they run from about 90 days to five years, although the majority is less than a year. And then the various drug trafficking, organized crime, targeted mandatory minimums um, range from about six months to three years, and those are all considered to be indictable offenses. So the, at this point, the students were digesting this, and they were saying to themselves, these aren't what I thought. I thought they were really long sentences, and I thought that they targeted many, many more crimes than what is here. And so we got talking about, okay, 
So if they're targeting, if they're shorter sentences than we thought, then the implications are really going to be for provincial corrections. That's where you're going to see the influx of inmates. That's where you're going to see the revolving doors and the shorter sentences. So we had a little bit of discussion about that. And so um, the next sort of avenue that we took was we really wanted to know um, what do the crime rates tell us? I'm usually pretty, I, I walk around a lot when I do this, so it's um, making me nervous to be tied here. But um, to have a look at, so what we did was we went to the Uniform Crime Reporting Survey. It's um, with Statistics Canada. Any of you can Google it and any of you can find it, and that's what we did. We went and we had a look and we found this graph that talks about the um, police-reported crime rates in the country. And so what you can kind of see is that that very top bar, that reddish color one, is the total crime rate. And what you kind of see from 1962 to date is kind of a U-shaped curve. So the crime rates were pretty low. They were in around a little better than 2,000 per 100,000 population. 2,000 crimes per 100,000. And then you see them really grow as we're going through the 70s and the 80s to a peak in about 1990s, and then they start to go down. What do you think was happening there? All you baby boomers were going through, right? All the baby boomers were through. That cohort was moving through, and so it really was a blip on the radar, um, and it's sort of returning back down to normal. So that's the top line. That's the total crime rate. Next line down is the property crime rate. You can see it kind of follows the same trend. That's the gray with the little squares in it. Same trend. The next line down is other criminal code conditions. These are things like um, fraud and um, uh, prostitution and those kinds. They kind of lump the statistics Canada lumps them all together. Um, it, the same type of pattern. That's that purplish third line there. And the very bottom line is our violent crime, which has, over all of those years since 1962, remained relatively stable. So not a lot of changes. So my students at this point were saying, what the? They, they couldn't understand. So if crime is coming down, why do we need to get tougher on crime. So these were some of the questions that they were asking. And so we went to some of Vic Tave's interviews, and, and Vic Tave said to us through his interviews, you know, um, it's really not the police reported crime. It's the victimization. People don't always report their crimes. So we thought, okay, well, let's have a look at the victimization surveys. General Social Survey has a victimization piece. Let's have a look. So here's what we found. What we have here along the bottom is from 1994 to 2009, so a 10-year period. And what we have along that y-axis going up is um, the rates per 1,000 individuals. So what we see, the very top line, the green line, is called household victimization. So these are things like vandalism to your house or break and enter or auto theft. So we see in 1999, it's around, what, 220 per 1,000 um, households. We see it rise a little bit in 2004 to 250, and then we see it drop kind of back down to the same rate. So over that 10-year period, if you averaged it out, it wouldn't have changed a whole lot. The orange line is violent victimization. So how, 
what we see is a little over 100 per 1,000 Canadians said that they had been violently victimized in 1999, and that remained virtually unchanged in 2009. The third um, reddish-colored line is theft of personal property. Again, the very same trend. It's kind of up a little bit. I think it's about 16% or something that it's risen over that 10-year period. But confusingly, those aren't the crimes that we're targeting. So, of course, my students were saying, okay, Vic Taves, we still don't get it, right? We still don't know why we're doing this. These victimization surveys are not congruent with what you're telling us. So then um, they said, well, let's have a look. Vic Taves said, look, Canadians just don't feel safe. We're speaking to them, and they're telling us we don't feel safe. And so we thought, okay, let's go have a look at some surveys that um, ask Canadians that question. Do you feel safe? Now, this next slide is really busy. I'm just going to very generally, this is from the National Post, and they took it from Statistics Canada, again, from the, the General Social Survey. And in this survey, um, the highlights are this. 93% of Canadians felt that um, they were safe from crime. 93% overall. Um, this is actually broken down by some of the major cities. Um, they were also said, well, how safe do you feel at home? Around the same average, about 90% of Canadians said, we feel really safe when we're at ho in our home at night. And that's cities ranging from Montreal to um, the safest city in the country is Moncton, New Brunswick, according to the residents who live in Moncton, New Brunswick. Um, how safe do you feel walking alone at night? The range actually was from about 77% said they felt really safe to about 99% who said they felt really safe. And so in asking Canadians if they felt safe, we still didn't get a good picture of why this legislation. So that was kind of our little exploration. Students were still confused. They still didn't understand. Um, but at least they had kind of some background into the stats. So then they were saying to me, okay, well, what do we do if we don't initiate legislation that incarcerates more people with mandatory minimums? I mean, we still have crime rates that are in around, that, that are pretty high in some areas. How do we address that? And so that's when we went to the literature. That's when we went to the experts and we said, okay, what is it? I've done some research into risk prediction in, in the past, and I have um, many colleagues who have done research elsewhere. And so where we started was... With um, We started looking at the What Works literature base, and so there's a large literature base out there um, from the top researchers of this literature area are Canadian. So we have the like of, likes of Don Andrews, who passed away about a year and a half ago. He spent his whole life researching what works with offenders and in prediction out of Carleton University in Ottawa. Paul Jandro, who was my um, supervisor for my academic um, master's degree and part of my PhD before he retired, who has also received the Governor General Award for um, his research into what works. Um, uh, he, he has made huge contributions. He's the reason that Yoda is in the corner because he would teach his graduate classes sometimes with a Yoda puppet. 
um, imparting the wisdom of the Force, right? Uh, Robert Ross, again, who's passed away but made huge contributions into offender rehabilitation. Jim Bonta, who is actually the head of research for Public Safety Canada. Uh, Steve Wormuth, who works at University of Saskatchewan. So these are the five um, top researchers who have been most, most prolific. Ironically, much of this research has been funded by Public Safety Canada and Correctional Services of Canada. And so from the work of these five individuals and their spawn, i.e. their graduate students, what we've come up with in the literature are five real or three really sound principles. If you attend to these principles in your agencies, in your probation offices, in your institutions, with offenders, you can reduce reoffending in some cases if it's done well by 50 to 60 percent. These principles are what are called the risk principle, the need principle, and the responsivity principle. I'd like to spend a little time on the risk principle, and I'll go fairly quickly through the other two because I think that the risk principle has the largest impact in terms of determining who gets what kind of sentence. Okay, so the risk principle has two pieces. The first piece looks at risk to reoffend can be assessed using a valid and reliable measure and or process. What we have seen since the mid-80s in the literature is a growth of risk assessment tools that are actuarial in nature, so they're grounded in studies of offenders, pulling out characteristics of offenders who reoffend, and... Um, um, using those to gauge or predict who's going to reoffend in the future. They've been validated in the literature. They actually do measure reoffending. And in some cases, they um, predict above chance as, as much as 20 to 30% above chance um, in deciding who's going to reoffend and who isn't. The second part of the risk principle is that once we can validly measure or predict someone's risk to reoffend, we have to match our intensity of services, and by services I mean supervision of that person and risk reduction. Um, we have to match our intensity of those two things to their risk level. So if we have a higher risk, uh, an offender who um, scores higher risk to reoffend, we want to really closely manage their risk. That means Maybe we do have to um, institutionalize them. If we are going to monitor them in the community, we're going to see them more often. We're going to have heavier conditions. We're going to have lots of collateral contacts. That's risk management. But at the same time, we want to engage in risk reduction activities that are going to actually help them to begin to self-manage because we can't babysit everyone forever. So part of your case management plan is risk reduction with your client caseload. Whether you're in an institution or whether you are um, in the community, you need to balance these two aspects of your case plan, which hasn't always been the case um, in my work with um, uh, corrections workers. So those are the two pieces of the risk principle. Use a valid tool, measure risk to reoffend. They're out there, and once you know someone's risk, match the intensity of services to that. One caveat here, a lot of people have said to me over the past few years, yeah, but if we take those low-risk offenders and we really start to work with them intensively, we can start to prevent them from becoming high-risk. The research tells us, although that's common sense, 
It's not what the numbers say. The numbers say if I intensively target a low-risk individual, I can increase his risk to reoffend. I can increase the probability that he'll reoffend. And we'll talk about in a minute why that might be the case. So I just wanted to bring one piece of research that I um, felt was quite reflective. And I took this from um, a quintessential text called Anders and Bonta, Psychology of Criminal Conduct. And so this particular study looks at these four studies that you see on the right. And it looks at what happens when we take low-risk offenders and we, um, and we just kind of let them be. We supervise them. We watch them. If they have some needs, we might refer them to one or two programs, but we don't intensively target them. What happens? Well, what ends up happening across these four studies is that their risk stays pretty low. What we're looking at here is a risk between 0 and 20% recidivism rate. So their recidivism rate stays pretty low if you just kind of leave them alone. If, on the other hand, you target them intensively in every one of these four studies, and this has been replicated over and over again, you increase their recidivism rate. Look at that gray bar. That recidivism rate has gone from about 10% up to about 30. We've increased it by 20% for that sample of offenders. So it really is counterintuitive, kind of flies in the face of common sense, but a lot of research will do that, and it's very difficult to assimilate into what we think might be true. With that in mind, let's have a look at what happens with high-risk offenders. And so if you minimally target high-risk offenders, you just kind of leave them alone, their recidivism rate stays fairly high. So the pink dot at the bottom, a little less than a 40% recidivism rate, right on up to 90, 90%, 95% recidivism rate. That makes sense, right? If you don't work with a high-risk offender, he's going to have a high recidivism rate. Watch this. If you target them intensively, look at the bang for your buck. Look at those reductions in recidivism rate. Look at that gray bar. You've taken that sample of offenders who might have had a recidivism rate up around 95 to 99%, and you've dropped it down to about 30%. That's huge. That's huge. So it's really, to me, it's about getting smart with targeting and, and, and reducing crime rates, not necessarily about getting tough. That's the risk principle. In terms of the need principle, it's very simple. Once you know a person's risk to reoffend, you know how intensively you want to target them, you want to target criminogenic needs. Those are the needs that this person has that are related to criminal offending. Remember a few years back, it was all about self-esteem, right? Offenders needed self-esteem programs. Every probation office had a self-esteem program. John Howard, all of the federal corrections, self-esteem, self-esteem. It's not a criminogenic need. It's not a need that's related to an offender's reoffending. What we want to target are the actuarially or statistically shown factors. These are things like antisocial attitudes. If I have an attitude that's supportive of crime and criminal behavior, guess what? I'm going to hang around with people who have criminal attitudes. So uh, antisocial peers is another. So there are a number of um, assessments that we can do to determine what a person's criminogenic needs are. 
just a quick look at a study that talks about if we target one to three more non-criminogenic needs than criminogenic needs, we get very little, if any, bang for our buck in terms of reducing recidivism. That's the little flat black bar on the left. If we target criminogenic needs, at least one, or at least four to six more than non-criminogenic, then we get about a 31% reduction in recidivism. So a really important principle. The final principle has to do with two things. What type of programming do we use? There's been lots of programs implemented in corrections. You see many, many different things. What you really want to have in your agency is a cognitive behavioral program. We have to target people's thinking in order to change their behavior. It's all about the attitudes. For those of you that quit smoking, you had to change your thinking about smoking. For those of you that diet or have had life changes in terms of heart disease, you've had to change your thinking about all of those things. It's very important, and it's equally important for criminals. The second piece is specific responsivity. We want to make sure that we are tailoring our treatment plans to the individual. If someone has low motivation, I've heard so many correctional workers say, well, I'm not going to work with him because he doesn't want to work with me. He's high risk. He's the one that needs you to work with him. Start building that relationship with him. Try to motivate him. Work that way with him. Attend to his motivation levels. Some offenders have low literacy levels. Some of them have cognitive functioning issues. We have to be aware of these things. Otherwise, we risk having cookie-cutter case plans or cookie-cutter programs, and that's not going to help us. I'm going to quickly go over this slide because Sue's, Sue's given me the, uh, the brush oh, wow. here. The, the brush. How long do I have? I'm you're, done. You're pretty much done. I'm pretty much done. So um, I'm not going to get to the implications, which is what's coming next, but I think what I've given you is enough for us to discuss over lunch, to digest and think about, and then maybe I can talk a little bit at the beginning of the session about what some of the implications are of the bill in light of what we know, what works.